Coming up on today's show, more escalations in Russia, although Putin calling for a ceasefire for 36 hours this weekend. We'll get the latest on that situation. Damar Hamlin collapsed in the NFL. You've heard the story. Is there any way to ensure absolute safety in sport and travel chaos in our country yet again? Um, right now, though, we're going to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. We're early into the new year, of course, and uh, there are some signs that um, the Russia-Ukraine war may be at something of a turning point, or another turning point, maybe. At least from the Russian perspective, they've suffered some very heavy losses recently. Uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said that Russia is planning to call up even more troops and to try and launch a major offensive to try and turn the tide. At least that's his expectation. Um, this morning, Putin ordered his military forces to hold a 36-hour ceasefire starting tomorrow into Saturday in observance of the Russian Orthodox Christmas holiday. Ukrainian officials say it's it's a cynical trap, pure propaganda. So um, let's find out what is the latest. We're going to chat with retired Major General Dennis Thompson, who is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and at the University of Manitoba's Centre for Defence and Security Studies. Um, Major General, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Chase. Good to be here. First of all, let's start with this announcement of a ceasefire. Is it um, a cynical trap in pure propaganda, as the Ukrainians say it is? Well, there's not much that Putin does that isn't cynical. <laughs> uh, however, in this case, uh, I think this is a, a bit of a desperate move. He's trying to signal to uh, perhaps those that are still sitting on the fence with respect to him that he's a decent fellow, but I think most people see through it. Uh, he's linked it to the Christian Orthodox Church, Church's uh, celebration of Christmas, which typically takes place uh, on the 6th, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't think most people are buying it. Perhaps they will not be uh, engaged in any in any combat, but I'm sure the Ukrainians aren't going to let up. Um, he's, uh, in fact, Zelensky says he's quite certain that um, Putin is planning to launch a new offensive, try and turn the tide, calling up more forces. Um, is that uh, is that what we're seeing? Is that what the analysts are saying that Russia will try and turn the tide and launch new offensives? Well, the one place where they're still pushing hard is the, is the town of Bakhmut, which we've all heard about since uh, August September and is where the Wagner group as well as the Russian army is focused and they haven't made any real progress. It's a bit of a it's a bit of it puzzles most of us because we don't understand why they would make such an effort to capture a town that is of little significance. I hear it referred to sometimes as a strategic town and it may be the crossroads of of uh, several might be the crossroads for several uh, supply lines, but it's really not that important. And they have really leaned into it and taken an awful lot of casualties. And of course, the Ukrainians have as well. But I think that the battle of attrition in that particular area is certainly weighted on the Ukrainian side against the Russians. And the evidence of that is, of course, this barracks that was taken out yes. uh, two days ago where they, where the Russians claim they lost 89 soldiers, uh, which is, uh, it's quite remarkable that they would make that admission because the real number is probably a multiple of 89, and I wouldn't want to guess what it is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they always minimize. Um, in terms of that strike, I found it interesting. Uh, the Russian military came out and said it was a result of their soldiers um, using cell phones, and that's how Ukraine was able to target them. What, what do you know about that, cell phones on the battlefield? Well, it's the first thing you take away from soldiers in a professional army. Um there's a number of mistakes here, and uh, first, premier among them is to blame your soldiers. Commanders never blame their soldiers for this sort of uh, event. And I think what we've seen 
is that uh, it is true that uh, Russian soldiers were using their cell phones, but they were using their cell phones from a facility that was within easy range of the HIMARS rocket system. So if you're going to put soldiers in barracks for the to rest them up or to train or whatever, you, you, you ensure that they're at least far enough away from the forward edge of the battle area or, or the front line that they can't be reached by uh, your, your enemy's um, rockets or artillery. And this is clearly not the case. And on top of that, it's not the soldiers who put the ammunition in this barracks or in this uh, schoolhouse where they were sheltering. That would have been a decision made by commanders, and it resulted in even more deaths. So uh, to pin it on soldiers is a, is a cop-out on behalf of the commanders, and the fact that there was ammunition present is, is uh, you know, unforgivable if you're one of the uh, mothers or fathers that lost a son in that massive strike by the Ukrainian uh, forces. What does it do? Because we're hearing all kinds of reports that support for the war and support for the people conducting the war in Russia is really starting to flag. People in Russia are getting more and more and more upset. Um, and this can't help. How, what, what, what do we know about how the Russians are feeling about what's happening? And it's interesting. Uh, of course, most of the opposition to the war is occurring in urban centers, but a lot of the soldiers are coming from the rural areas. So that's one way that Putin and his regime have tried to deflect any criticism as a result of casualties, but it will start to pile up, which calls into question his ability to mobilize right. even more soldiers. I mean, we saw uh, what happened when he when he did this uh, first emergency mobilization, that as many soldiers that were mobilized, also that same number of young men left Russia for for Turkey and other, other parts around the world. And so if there's another call-up, you can rest assured that this time around it won't be as easy as the first time around. And, and that was a bit of a disaster, as we know. They, they've been feeding these uh, untrained men into a meat grinder yeah. uh, in the hopes that they can break the back of the, of the Ukrainian army, and they are not succeeding. In terms of how important that support is, is does Putin care? I mean, does he need to have the support yeah. of the Russian populace? Right. Every dictator cares about uh, popular opinion okay because when popular opinion turns on them it's it's curtains it's all over for them so yes he cares but he but he he has to manage it through his own propaganda channels and so what's interesting there is of course early on in the war he got rid of any sort of op opposing media outlets including any that were based on the web uh, did his best uh, probably unsuccessfully because most Russians are fairly internet savvy to block the news from the West and then fed his own line into government control media in order to, to, to spin a yarn to the Russian people about what was actually, what, what the fantasy world that he's being, uh, been briefing to the Russian population. So if you own the communication channel, which he does at the moment, you can control the narrative, but you couldn't hide the number of deaths that they suffered at that barracks. So they had to come out with a figure that would, uh, seem credible, at least to the Russian population and, uh, and then explain it away as being something that's just the cost of this special military operation that they need to continue to push on the fascists. Now, that message might work in the rural areas where Internet is very spotty and where other news sources are very spotty, but those that have access to VPNs, et cetera, in the, in the urban areas will know the real story. So I, I don't know how long it will take. It's tough to say. Right now, apparently, he has a pretty good grip on the, uh, on the information channel and there's no real, no real obvious organized opposition against the war inside of Russia. 
What about uh, the Ukrainian side? I mean, uh, obviously, war is awful, but it seems like they have, I don't know if you would call it momentum, but it seems like Russia seems to be uh, in a tougher spot than Ukraine. Not not to minimize what they're going through, but I think you understand what I mean. Yes, they definitely have the initiative, and they have since September. So they, they, the Russians clearly had the initiative at the front end of the war when they, when they rolled into Ukraine uh, uh, in, in a fashion that surprised everybody, but in a, in a sort of haphazard fashion. They were fought to a standstill, and we had that period yeah. of attrition over the course of the summer while the Ukrainians uh, uh, stiffened, uh, stiffened their defense and then received a number of uh, Western weapons, turned it around in September by taking back Kiev and then later Kherson, and now they're battling for the town of Kremina right now uh, as we speak, whilst the Russians are impaling themselves in Bakhmut. So they have the initiative. The, the big issue here is, of course, people to say that, uh, I mean, I've heard people talk about the war slowing down in the winter. The, the only time it slows down is in the transition periods between uh, uh, fall and winter and then winter and spring. And because it's been uh, uncharacteristically warm in Europe, it's still pretty sloppy in the areas where where the ground combat is occurring in Ukraine. So once it freezes up, uh, I think all bets are off. And if I was a Russian soldier, I'd be pretty nervous. And, and so, I mean, it's impossible to track with the path that we're on. I mean, what what's the end to this, Major General? I mean, where, how do, how does this end? Do you has think? To be, has to be. It'll be it'll be decided on the battlefield. Okay. I do not. No negotiating. I believe that, well, the, the Ukrainians have no reason to negotiate. And plus, uh, uh, the, the only way they would negotiate it is if, is if Putin wasn't in power. And I don't, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. And who knows who would replace him if he was displaced. Uh, but it'll be decided on the battlefield. The big question is, once they push the Russians out of, uh, out of Kherson uh, district in, in its entirety, and uh, Zaporizhia, where the, the nuclear power plant is, and the, and the entire Donbass, do they actually go and try and take Crimea? That's the big question, which has, uh, after, after having been occupied for eight years, a large Russian-speaking and Russian population, mm-hmm. uh, whether that is something they want to do, or perhaps they take all of Crimea back and, uh, and, and allow Russians basing rights of uh, Sevastopol so that they can keep their back black sea fleet in the port that they've already built. But that's entirely speculative. I don't know. But I, I do believe that Ukraine, quite rightly, will hold out for a decision that's, that's arrived at on the battlefield in their favor. And I have no doubt that that's what's going to happen. It's, it's just a question of time. It's remarkable that that's, that's where we're at. When you, I think when this started uh, back in February, nobody would have predicted that Ukraine would be in position of calling the shots on how this is going to end and possibly regaining territory that they'd lost years ago. I mean, it, it's shocking, really. It is, but it also shows you what happens when you, uh, when you, govern a com- when you accept corruption in governing a, a country. So if we were to compare Russia to China... Mr. Putin has, uh, has embraced corruption and, and of course, uh, run the country like a gangster yeah. and, uh, and made sure that that money was spread around to all of his friends. Whereas Mr. Xi Jinping, who's also a dictator, has gone the opposite route and, and absolutely attacked uh, corruption inside his country in, in order and used it as a tool to get rid of his opposition. So uh, that corruption seeps all the way down to the lowest levels in the, in the Russian military and has resulted in a in a um, frightfully unprofessional force that hasn't been able to make the gains that they they should have easily made given the numerical superiority yeah. 
and at the start of the war, the superiority in technology. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 amazing. Um, Major General, thank you so much for your time. Great discussion. I really appreciate it. We're going to be chatting uh, about Damar Hamlin. Uh, some good news. Guarded, but good, uh, regarding DeMar Hamlin. He is the safety for the Buffalo Bills. He remains in intensive care in a Cincinnati hospital. This morning, the Bills released a statement saying that he has shown, quote, remarkable improvement in the last 24 hours. While still critically ill, he has demonstrated that he appears to be neurologically intact. His lungs continue to heal, and he's making steady progress. Hamlin collapsed on the field on Monday uh, after a hit with a Bengals player. It's believed he suffered. It's, it hasn't been confirmed, but the, the consensus seems to be it looks like a case of the relatively rare but not unheard of commotio cordis, which, as far as I can tell, is a situation where you get a direct blow to the chest at just the right or wrong moment, and it can stop the heart. But uh, it's reignited the whole debate about safety in the NFL. Definitely an issue, but I'm not sure if this particular case uh, needs to be added to the huge pile of troubling issues around player safety in football. But let's get some insight into what happened and, and what we need to do to keep athletes safe. We're going to chat with Jack Goodman, who is an expert on cardiac health and exercise and a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Happy to help. So when we talk about this uh, commotio cordis, and I, and I guess we're making some assumptions that that's what we're dealing with here, but it, you know, it's a really rare thing, but it's not unheard of in sport. We, we know this can happen in sports. So when we talk about player safety, does this fit into that category? I mean, can you uh, safeguard against all what are, appear to be a freak occurrence? Well, yeah, it, it, this is this happens infrequently for sure. Uh, it, it's common in in sports that have projectiles like yeah. lacrosse balls or baseballs. Uh, and you're absolutely right; you've got to have the right force at the right location, and it has to hit the the right spot within about a twenty to forty millisecond window of time. So uh, those factors alone render it very, very rare. Um, so, uh, you know, are, are there methods to avoid it? Uh, you know, and the simplest example is, uh, baseball hitters, uh, are advised to try to turn away from the ball that's coming at them, uh, put their back into it or their shoulders. So, um, and there's, there have been some equipment, uh, attempts, uh, attempts with equipment to minimize the impact of a projectile. Um, I don't know how successful they've been, and frankly, I, I don't know that many examples. Um, and, uh, you know, the challenge is how do you avert an impact like that uh, in equipment yeah. uh, uh, without impeding the, the movement of an individual? So um, it, it, it's a tough one. It's, it's a tricky thing to avoid, especially in a game of football where you'd have to have padding that was that allowed for a diffusion of that blow uh, in a very general way. In, in some of these instances, I mean, you can you can safeguard to prevent an incident from happening. And like you say in this one, it's next to impossible. So I guess the next step is, okay, let's make sure we have a plan in place to deal with it should it happen. I mean, that's the best safeguard you can have, right? Well, you, you hit the nail on, on one of a couple of the heads, uh, for sure. The uh, We talk about a sudden cardiac death in all sorts of scenarios, like marathon running to sports, uh, including football. 
and we, we can minimize where possible the likelihood of them happening. Some ways to do it where there's underlying conditions that may predispose somebody from that. You can screen with some success, and that's not without its controversy as well. Uh, but the key is to have an emergency action plan in place yeah. so that the retrieval of an AED, external, uh, an automated external defibrillator, not only is it readily accessible, but it can be brought to field and used within three minutes because that three-minute window of time is the longest period of time that you've got for the highest likelihood of resuscitation. And in this case, with cordis with this particular condition, sorry, um, you know, resuscitation isn't foolproof. Right. Uh, it doesn't. It, it's not successful a hundred percent of the time. Far less than that. But the access to that device. And the application to the chest within three minutes is so critical to maximize the chances. Um, and, and I think we don't know what happened on the field precisely. We don't really know the details, uh, any details of his no. medical condition. Only those who are treating him can. But what we saw was a very immediate response, and it sounds as though the resuscitation was performed very quickly. I, I guess the question is, and, and, and there's been so much discussion and debate and argument, and I, I'll, I'll be the first to say I think football in particular has a player safety issue. Um, but I, I guess all sport comes with, all activities really come with risks, some more than others. Uh, but in this particular instance and, and, and in other cases, you can't prevent that. I mean, there has to be some buy-in. You're going to have some risk, and all you can do is try and mitigate it and make sure you have a plan to deal with it should it happen. Yeah, I, you know, kids being driven to their minor uh, hockey league game are probably a far greater yeah. risk from a motor vehicle accident than the sport itself. And we all make those choices in life. And it's a matter. It, it, this is what risk management is, whether it's in an occupation or in sport. We mitigate the risk to the best extent possible, and we weigh the risks against the benefits. And I think we would all agree that physical activity, exercise, and um, all of the debates of safety in specific sports, including football, those are that's an important dialogue. But the relative risks are really what has to be part of the discussion. Yeah, exactly, for sure. Um, thanks so yeah. much for your. I really appreciate being here, Jack. Thank you. Got a story to tell you about my mom in Mazatlan, but I'll do that in a while. El Chapo's son was arrested there, and things have gone wild in Mazatlan this morning by the sounds of it. I'll get to that in a minute. First, though, uh, speaking of Mazatlan and Mexico and travel, uh, I think all of the stranded Canadians have finally made it home, right? I think. I'm not hearing any more stories about people still being trapped in Mexico or Cuba or wherever else. Uh, some of them were delayed well over a week, though. Their baggage, that's another story. A lot of them, I think, still haven't received their bags. Um Lots of reports of lost or delayed baggage, so all the problems haven't been solved. Biggest issue now, though, now that everyone's made it home, is is compensation. There is a system in place in this country for that, but to be frank, it sucks. It does not seem to work. The rules are there. They are, but it's not that simple. Federal politicians say they're going to hold Sunwing and Via Rail to account for what happened over the holidays, but um, we don't know exactly what that means. And given a look at the history of enforcing and holding them to account, don't have a lot of hope that it's actually going to happen. Um, a lot of the progress that has been made, at least getting this 
so-called passenger bill of rights down on paper and part of the Canadian society uh, has fallen to different groups like uh, the one we're going to talk to right now, Air Passenger Rights, which is a nonprofit group of volunteers that live in this world and work to try and make things better for all of us who fly. The president of that is Gabor Lukash. Uh, Gabor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Good morning. Listen, let's start here with, with the mess that we saw over the Christmas season. Um, really, really bad. That's why we're talking about this now. But let's not try and pretend that this is the first time this has happened. We saw this in the summer. We've seen this countless times, right, where things just went right off the rails. That's correct, and that's why the problem is. Uh, the rules that have been enacted, actually, they are more of a smokescreen for the government to be able to claim they did something. But in reality, they are so complicated, so complex, yeah. so many loopholes, so uh, evidence-intensive to verify claims that uh, they are not consumer-friendly, to say the very least. And those were also findings of small claims court adjudicator here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, who looked at it and said, oh my God, for a $400 claim, I need to look at 1,000 pages of documents. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's it, it's so impossible. Let's first of all, let's go through what our rights are through the work of you and your group and others like you in terms of getting this bill of rights put into place and a list of rules and regulations that the airlines must follow. What does it spell out? What does it say we're entitled to as air passengers? I would like to be clear. I wish to dissociate myself from the government's <laughs> current regime because because it's it, it's not. It, they have done things against our recommendation recommended that Canada adopt the European Union's gold standard. Yep. Uh, we, we're, we're just simple and straightforward and, and passengers have a chance of meaningful chance to uh, know quickly whether they are owed something. Uh, the government disregarded all our recommendations and just have done something which is good only for the airlines. So under the current system, which again, it's not passenger friendly, was not put in place by us or we don't support it in its current form. Um, the compensation when a flight is delayed or cancelled depends on the vague notion of whether something is or outside the carrier's control, whether it was or wasn't needed for safety reasons. And uh, there's a whole list of uh, further classifications, whether it's a small carrier or last carrier. Mm-hmm. So total of six, we to have six different scenarios that, that, that that's where the problem lies. When a flight delay or cancellation is deemed to be within the carrier's control and not due to safety reasons, then you are owed lump sum compensation up to $1,000 in the case of a large carrier like Air Canada, Wedget or Swoop, and $500 in the case of small carrier like Sunwing or Flare would be. And that's spelled out. So we know that's in place. We know there are hundreds, thousands of people that went through that exact situation uh, last week, two weeks ago. Um, but but it's not as simple as just, oh, this is what the rules say and it happens. It rarely happens that the rules are actually followed, right? Like hardly ever. You go back to judgments, they're few and far between. That's right, and, and there, there are two reasons. First, what we see with the passengers from the past few weeks is that Sunwing has the audacity to claim that um, those cancellations were actually due to weather or some other reasons outside their control. And if that what they were saying were true, then under the uh, flawed regime in Canada, passengers would not be owed compensation. To verify whether, whether they are actually telling the truth would take a very long process, lots of evidence, Passengers in the current situation are left with one practical option, which is taking airlines to small claims court. The federal regulator, whose job it would be to enforce passenger rights, uh, has a backlog of 31,000 complaints, as latest number that we have. They have known in the past to be cozy with the airlines, 
and they are part of the problem. They are not enforcing the law. What you need to know is that when an airline breaks a regulation, breaks a provision of the APPR, the government, Canadian Transportation Agency, could fine them up to $25,000 right. per passenger per incident per violation. But it's not happening. So violations are not really being dealt with. And from a financial perspective, it is cheaper for the airline right. to disobey the law and occasionally pay one incident blue moon to pay a nominal fine, a couple hundred dollars, maybe a few thousand dollars at best. And at the same time, just in all other cases, just continue to disobey the law. Still the more, it is now more profitable for airlines to disobey the law than to comply with the law. And, and that, that's the major flaw in this. If you're running any business and you're taking a look at what's going to cost me more, you're going to take the cheaper option. If that means the passenger gets screwed, who cares? They don't care. They're running a business, right? That's exactly, you just, just put it right while it is. That's exactly the problem. Now you say 31,000 cases uh, waiting to be heard that have been brought forward by passengers. How many times have they actually issued an judgment? Do you have any idea? I mean, nowhere near that, right? The Canadian Transportation Agency uh, website publishes only a few cases. Also, they have this informal facilitation process that they do first before formal adjudication, and they drive away passengers quite often with valid claims. I've seen cases where passengers went there, they were told by this preliminary facilitation process, oh, we think the airline did everything right. Then when a passenger took the airline to small claims court, the airline paid up. So uh, it is not passenger-friendly, and a Canadian transportation agency is also cooking the books when it comes to reporting and statistics. They claim falsely that uh, 97% of the cases get resolved by facilitation before it goes to adjudication. But when actually parliamentarians were asking questions, it turned out that they don't keep track of how exactly those cases are allegedly resolved, whether it's the passenger giving up or going away or actually reaching a satisfactory settlement. Here's another way of creating a, a dog and pony show, pretending that we have a consumer protection regime in place while in reality, it's really a dysfunctional system that just helps to perpetuate the current situation. So, so what's the fix? Who who needs to actually take this seriously? I mean, the airlines are, as you say, they're 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 exploiting it to their benefit. Passengers are losing out. Who? Where, where's the fix on this, Cavour? The fix has to come from Parliament first and foremost. Parliament uh, uh, should amend the flawed uh, provisions in the Canada Transportation Act. Just last month, we submitted a 29-page report on how and why that should be done. Uh, following that, the air passenger protection regulations should be amended to reflect the, the proper regime. And essentially, we should harmonize the European Union's gold standard, which has been tried, tested, known to work for the past 16 years. Uh, and we need proper enforcement. The, it, it, we can have the best possible rules if without proper enforcement, they're going to remain dead letter. So frustrating. So frustrating. Gabor, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.